Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We ask that you will breathe upon it, Heavenly Father. Challenge us with your word, O God. Illuminate our hearts and illuminate our paths, Heavenly Father. Let every yoke be destroyed, every burden be lifted. Instruct us by your word. We submit ourselves to the dictates of your spirit, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, if you've been following us, um, we started a series right after uh, um, Easter. We, did, we, we celebrated uh, Good Friday and celebrated Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And then we thought that there are a lot of characters that in the plot that unfolded, the drama that unfolded, that led to the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior and his resurrection that we've never really looked at in any depth or any detail. And so we started to look at the characters Sunday to Sunday. Um, And so the first Sunday, uh, we looked at the African, um, Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross up to Golgotha. Um, The next Sunday, we looked at uh, the two robbers. How many remember the two robbers? The, The repentant robber and the unrepentant robber. And last Sunday, how many were blessed by Joseph of Arimathea? We were not last Sunday, Sunday before the last. Joseph of Arimathea. How many were, were here when we did that, if you're in-house? Those of you online, you can put it into the chat. I was there online if, if you were there or you were here in person. So today we want to look at another character. Um, and if you want a title for today's message, it's The Man Who Betrayed Jesus. The Man Who Betrayed Jesus. Of course... Um, instantly, you know that this is the most infamous character in the whole drama. Um, his name was Judas. And it, Judas is actually a good name. Um, it comes from the, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Judah, uh, which we are told means God be praised, and some would say God, Jehovah leads. Um, but it's instructive that This was a good name until Judas betrayed Jesus. People named their children Judas. But I've never been for a naming ceremony and dedicated a child called Judas. I don't know if you... Do you have any... Does anybody have any friend called Judas? Um, So so Judas' antecedents have made sure that that's a name no father, no mother is going to call their child. I think if, if, if anyone did that, I think... Uh, uh, culture, religion, you, whatever term, we would have to call the person and say, are you sure you want this child to go through life being called Judas? And when you look at his story, it's actually a very sad story. It's, it's, it's tragic. Um, here was someone who was uh, introduced as a disciple, numbered amongst the apostles, uh, someone who lived and served with Jesus. Someone who was gifted um, when Jesus laid hands on them and the gifts of the Spirit came upon them. He must have received some of the gifts of the Spirit as the other disciples did. Someone 
who was privileged to be in the innermost circle of those who walked with Jesus, served with Jesus, ministered with Jesus. Uh, someone who also acquired a privileged position within that inner group. He was the treasurer of Jesus' house. Of Jesus' house. I was going to say treasurer of Jesus' house. That's Lydie, uh, account, uh, head of finance. But he was the treasurer of Jesus' Uh, Jesus' Jesus's ministry. Um, and yet, what we see is a wasted life, wasted opportunities, a life that we can conclude from the circumstances that are put before us in the Word of God that has ended with a separation from God in eternity. The Gospels give us a close look at this character, Judas. We, uh, we see his heart displayed in an encounter that took place when Jesus was with a group of people and Mary, who had experienced the dynamic working power of God delivered from so many demons and a, wretched, and, and a life where she was trapped, in, in expressing her, her, her gratitude to God, takes this, 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 this container of, of expensive oil of spikenard and breaks it and anoints the feet of Jesus. The Bible records that, that account in John the 12th chapter and the 3rd verse. And then goes on to elaborately wipe his feet with her hair. And the Bible says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Um, when we go into the pursuit of God, we will talk a bit more about that. Because it's a picture of worship, of how we pour out ourselves in worship how we give our all, how we are, uh, and God does not stop us from being effusive and elaborate as we pour out our heart, and how the incense of our worship, when it's genuine, fills the house and fills the heavens, the throne room of God, with this beautiful fragrance of worship. But as the disciples watched this, I, I believe most of the other disciples were touched in their heart at this public expression of, of worship, but not Judas. Listen to what Judas says, the fourth to the sixth verse. One of his disciples, the Bible says, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. We get the character of Judas. He was dishonest. He was a thief. He was, he was a pilferer. Uh, he was in charge of the treasury, but he wasn't in charge of the treasury because he wanted to steward the money that was coming to Jesus' ministry. He, he managed to get his way into being in charge of the treasury so that he could steal from the treasury. It, all, it exposes his heart. Now, there's one thing, you know, there's something, a phrase I heard that there's honor amongst thieves. It's one thing to steal from a regular person is bad enough. But to steal from Jesus, how many know that that shows the darkened state of his heart? And eventually, he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And it's instructive that he wasn't even induced to betray Jesus. He instigated the betrayal of Jesus. Matthew, the 26th chapter, verses 14 to 16 then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest 
and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? He went to them to say, I can give you what you want. You want him, you want him dead, but what are you going to give me if I give him to you? And they said, they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, he started to look for the right opportunity and he eventually got it in the Garden of Gethsemane where he could deliver Jesus into their hands. Of course, he regretted his actions. And the Bible tells us what happened uh, in Matthew, the 27th chapter, verses 3 to 5. Um, then Judas, his, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was when Jesus had been condemned because he had betrayed Jesus to those who were after him, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knew Jesus was, was innocent. But he was driven by other things, which we will talk about. So he betrayed the innocent. But as soon as he had done it and Jesus was condemned, he, just, he, he felt so remorseful. He goes back to the people and says, I, I, I've, I've sinned. I betrayed innocent blood. And what was their response? Their response was tough. That's your problem. We've got what we wanted. They said to him, what is that to us? Uh, you see to it. Sort yourself out was what they were saying. And then he threw down the, the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and then went and hanged himself. With all the opportunity he had, he ended his life in this miserable way, separated in eternity from God. So what life lessons can we learn? I mean, Judas is put in the Bible because it's, he's there to instruct us. What instructions can we get from this account of Judas and him, him betraying Jesus? Well, the first thing, and it's interesting because this was the first thing uh, with the two robbers. It was the first thing uh, with Joseph of Arimathea. It was the first thing with the African Simon of Cyrene. And so it must, it's, it's clear to me that God is driving this home to us as Jesus' house. What's the first thing? The first thing is that that whole account confirms again the authenticity of Scripture. There is no religious book like the Bible. In fact, the Bible is more than a religious book. It's a spiritual book. The Bible contains the words of the living God. The words in the Bible are not mere words. Jesus says they are spirit and they are life. And so when the Spirit of God comes upon the words in the Bible, the Bible tells us they come alive. The Word of God is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Word of God is authentic. It is the Word of God. No matter how contemporary the world becomes, it does not change the Word of God. And we see that in this story. When we look back, and we see how many times the Old Testament prophesies what is happening to Judah. And some of the people who were being used to prophesy it thought they were prophesying, they were speaking about themselves. But 700 years later, 1,000 years later, we suddenly understand that it wasn't about themselves. They were speaking about what was to come. And 
that authenticates scripture. So the psalmist says in Psalms 41 verse 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David thought he was speaking about himself, but he was painting a picture of a future. A thousand plus years later, that would be our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the betrayal by Judas Iscariot. And the scripture in, in Zechariah is even more startling. Zechariah thinks he's speaking about himself, but he's prophesying. The, the, obviously, the spirit of prophecy has come upon him. He says in Zechariah, the 11th chapter, verses 11 to 13, So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, it is agreeable to you to give me my wages. Uh, exactly the same thing that happened to Jesus. The wages of sin is death. But the death was not put on you and I. The wages for our sin was put upon him. Zachariah says, give me my wages. It could have been Jesus saying, for their sake, give me what I have chosen to take upon myself my wages. Not his wages because he sinned, but his wages because he stood in, took your place and my place became our substitute. Give me my wages and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. That's what it cost to get Jesus on the cross. 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the porter, that princely prize that they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord for the porter. In the same way that, that Judas goes back and to the religious hierarchy, he throws the 30 pieces of silver at them. Amazing picture of what was to come hundreds of years ahead. Just helping us authenticate the scripture again and again. This scripture is the word of God. It is what changes our lives. Joshua 1 verse 8, we can't achieve success. We can't be prosperous except we are reading this scripture, meditating on it, speaking it, and obeying it. And the challenge to us becomes, how can we embed this as a part of our life? There's no shortcut to success. It is by the word of God. Our lives must be characterized by that. I break out of it by the word of God. I overcome it by the word of God. I achieve it by the word of God. I get to the destination by the word of God. I know God. So that I can be strong and do exploits by his word. So reading, studying, meditating, confessing, obeying the word of God. Is non-negotiable for the Christian who wants to achieve that success. Daily doing so. And hasn't God done it so well for us? That he gives us his word. And then puts the author of the word in you and I. The moment we give our lives, his spirit takes residence in our hearts. So the first thing, it confirms the authenticity of scripture. The second thing is that it's a graphic picture of what greed does to a person's life. Here was a man who was eaten up by greed. The, the, the enormity of it, that you're pilfering the treasury of Jesus... You almost want to say to him, Judas, were you not afraid that you're stealing the money that was raised for Jesus' ministry? You, 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 it's, it's dumbfounding. 
But it shows you what greed can do to a man. His heart was full of greed. He was with Jesus physically, but his heart was not with Jesus. He sat on the couch as they ate. But the throne in his heart was occupied by an idol of greed. And you know, we can say, but we're not like that. Well, let's be careful. Let's be careful that we haven't inadvertently elevated money or mammon to the place of an idol. And it happens in everyday life where we max out a credit card because we want to buy things that we don't need to impress people who don't know us and don't care about us. Where we are, we are, we are lured into debt by something that tells us that we can buy it now at no interest and pay it later. Where we will do all that we can just to show that materially we are where we are not. Where we will worship at the altars that are being created. Initially there were temples that were physical, but now there are temples that are virtual. Where we'll worship the idols of greed and materialism. We'll give anything to put a label on ourselves. Even when we fraudulently go and buy it in China, just so that we can tell people that this is where I belong. And Jesus put it plainly to us in Matthew the 6th chapter and the 24th verse. He says that there can't, be, there can't be a couch in your heart. There can only be a throne. No space for two, only space for one. So he says, no one can serve two masters. It's all about service. What destroyed Judas? He was serving mammon. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one. And isn't that what happened to Judas? He showed us that he hated Christ. He will hate the one and love the other. Or else he will be loyal to the word and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible. Number three. That account shows us that proximity does not guarantee salvation. He was there with Jesus. He ministered with him. He served him. He followed him around. Guess what? If we were watching the scenes unfold and we were told, who are the closest people to Jesus? What would, what would we have said? The 12 disciples. They ate with him. They ministered with him. They served him as he served. They slept, you know, in proximity, I'm sure, with him as they went from town to town, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, delivering people from demons. And despite all the outward appearance of being close to Jesus. His heart was far from Jesus. And it's a question we've got to ask ourselves because what happened to him was that he obviously was in religion. He wasn't in a relationship. And there are many who, go, who get into the religion of it, 
who know the things to do, the things to say, who measure their progress by how they can tick the boxes of the things that they do. But really their hearts are not knit with the heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was so proximate to Jesus, so close to Jesus, and yet he ended up in hell. Proximity does not guarantee salvation. Salvation is not a thing of the head. It's a thing of the heart. Number four. The sin you don't deal with will eventually destroy a person. You know, um, growing up, not my two, you know, early years of my Christian faith actually, um, there were certain books that shaped my life. And these are books that I just recommend all the time. Certain books that shaped my life. So if you ask me, what books shaped your life? What top four or five books shaped your life? Screwtape's Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's a must read. It's a must read. That book was mind-blowing. Um, Born Again by Charles Colson. A must read. It's a mind-blowing books. But then the ones that really, really spoke to me were Frank Peretti's books. How many have read Frank Peretti's books here? Yeah? Okay, the rest of you, you need to. You need to. Especially if you love novels that are racy and, and that your heart is beating. And, you know, um, Frank Peretti, Francine Rivers. You know, these are, these are authors you've got to read. They, they shaped my Christian life. I could, I, my understanding of unconditional love was taken to another level when I read Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. I, I remember reading it on a plane and I stopped because I knew that I was going to start crying on this plane and people are going to wonder what is wrong. It was that powerful. But Frank Peretti, all this stuff about Ephesians 6 verse 12, I understood it when I read This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti. But he had a book called The Oath. And if I remember the story, I read it 20 years ago or thereabouts. The Oath was about, I think it was Genesis 4 verse 7, about sin crouching at the door. And it was about... This, this little uh, monster, which at birth was, was small and insignificant and, you know, it wasn't really anything. But because they continued sinning, it continued to feed this monster. And this monster eventually grew to become something that, as he described it, reminded me of Leviathan. In the Bible. You know that beast Leviathan in the Bible. That's what it had become. A terrifying beast. That terrorized a whole community. And that happened. Because it had not been dealt with. When it was little. Judas didn't start possessed by greed. It must have been a little initially. But he never dealt with it. And it grew and grew until it totally took over his life. It's the same for us. And the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews 12 verse 1. And I love the amplified classic version of that scripture. Therefore then, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who have borne testimony to the truth. Uh, let's not, let's not go, go there. Let us strip off and throw aside every encumbrance. The unnecessary weight, and this is where I was going. 
And that sin which so readily, deftly, and cleverly clings to and entangles us. And let us run with patient endurance and steady and active persistence. The appointed cause of the race that is set before us. Every one of us has an appointed cause of the race. It's really your destiny. What heaven has destined you should be. The path heaven has destined you should run. They are appointed. That's why it's appointed. The appointed part of the race for you is, is different from the appointed part of the race for me. But the writer of Hebrews says there is a challenge. There is this sin that deftly and cleverly clings to us and tries to entangle us so that we trip, we fall and sometimes remain in a fallen state and we can't run the appointed race. And you know, the enemy knows that. If there's one thing that we must hand Satan, let's not try to not credit him with levels of evil and wickedness that are his portion. He is scheming, evil, wicked. He plots, he plans. He knows for each one of us what that little monster is that you should kill. Ruthlessly cut the head of the monster. Don't show it any mercy. Don't cuddle it. Don't think it looks nice. Don't think it's under control. Don't try and live with it. Don't accommodate it. It's a snake. It's a monster. It's just little and it looks cuddly. You might think you can handle it. It's going to grow into Leviathan. It's going to become a monster that consumes in the same way that a little taking of a few pennies here and there for Judas became the monster that caused him to hang himself and betray Jesus before hanging himself. And the interesting thing is that most of us, really, we already know what it is. We all know and if you don't, that's why the Holy Spirit is there. He will bring discernment. Close this door. We know when it is fear. We know when it is low self-esteem. We know when it is a caustic tongue. We know when it is jealousy. We know when it is an immoral issue. We know when it is a low self-esteem. We know what it is. Moses knew it was anger. He knew at 40 years old, he killed a man and buried him in the sand. He couldn't have said he didn't know he had an anger issue. And in hell, they have massive computer banks that are tracking a Christian. They are storing data. They are doing a lot of algorithms and analytics. They are plotting and planning a person's downfall. And they had Moses in their radar. From the moment he killed that guy, they thought, that's where we're going to get him. And they tracked him until the pinnacle of his career. Just before he took the children of Israel into the promised land. And that's when they hit him. And they used those closest to him. And they hit him so badly that God said to him, you're not going to take them in. I mean, you don't even have to go far. We have modern day examples. Will Smith at the height. Can you beat that? The evening he was to collect his Oscar with five other movies lined up. 
They were trying. I can imagine the computers in hell. Beep, 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 pop, 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 beep, 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 typing all the things. Get we're going to get him, whatever his issue was, whether, I don't know, him and Jada, I don't know what his issue was. But they are all typing, 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 typing. And then they say, we've got him, we've got him. And a grown-up man wakes up with a swagger in a public place. This is an intelligent man. Like they vacuumed his brain and goes up there and slaps somebody. For the wife, you're slapping somebody for away. Even her own behavior is questionable concerning you. I'm thinking, are you crazy? You blew your career. And as we hear, good Christian then, like Denzel Washington told him, they got you. You shouldn't have done that. They, they, they got you at the peak. And you know that's how Satan is. He knows what that monster is. But where it is, not much damage can be done to the kingdom. So he waits. If you crash there, maximum people affected two. Out of the two, you're one. So they say, live, 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 live it. So that it is at the pinnacle when there can be maximum damage. That's what happened to Moses. So we understand that we kill that monster. We destroy it. We are violent against that monster. We don't take any prisoners. That's why Jesus puts it graphically. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's violent. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He wasn't talking about doing it in a physical sense. What he was saying is do everything that you can to make sure you kill that sin. Number five. Don't give the enemy a foothold. Luke 22 verse 3 tells us, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. I like the way the Passion Translation puts it in John 13 verse 2. Before their evening meal had begun, the accuser had already planted betrayal into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, one thing you have to give Satan, he will try. A, he should try. That's his job. His assignment is clear. What's his assignment? John 10 verse 10. Jesus himself says to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his assignment. And he is diligent in his assignment. So he's going to try. That's his assignment. But my assignment and yours is to make sure that he fails when he tries. And how will he fail he fails because he can't get in. There's nothing he can do from the outside. Don't, don't follow all, this, all these ministries that use fear to trap you and collect you. There's nothing he can do from the outside. The snake existed, the Satan existed before Eden. He had fallen before Eden. But he was irrelevant as far as Eden was concerned, as long as man was walking with God. So our focus is not on Satan and his exploits. Our focus is on God. If I'm right with God, there's nothing Satan can do. But Judas wasn't right. There was darkness in his heart. Satan had things that were in Judas's life. You see, Satan comes when, you when he has things. That are in our lives. Jesus puts it this way in John 14 verse 30. And I like this passion translation. I won't speak with you much longer. For the ruler of this dark world is coming. 
but he has no power over me, for he has nothing to use against me. He's coming, but there's nothing he can do. That's, that's why people sleep well. People are not perturbed. I saw, you saw a coffin in, in your sleep. The whole church must wake up and start intercession because you saw a coffin. No. If he has nothing against you, the, 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 the coffin must just pass. I can never forget the story I heard about Lester Sumrall ministering somewhere in the South American, uh, Wesley, somewhere around, around your area in Brazil, ministering there to some tribe that was involved in seriously occultic stuff. And in the night, some of these demons entered his room and started to shake the bed. You know, when, when the bed you're on starts to move, how many know that? Be truthful to yourself. You will jump up and dash out of there. But what does Lester Sumrall do? It's a man who was supreme confidence in who he was in God. He gets up and he addresses the demons. That I have a long day tomorrow. I want to sleep. I'm going to put my head back on this bed. If this bed moves again. And I wake up. You will regret waking me up. And he slept. How many know that's real confidence? He didn't say, Pastor Bajo, wake up. Intercessors, start praying. Bind, lose, uproot. No. He understood that he has nothing in me, so he cannot have power over me. He understood that as long as I am submitted to God, he has to flee. James 4 verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You submit to God, not your pastor, not the head of the prayer ministry submitting for you. You submit to God. Number six, who you go to at your lowest or weakest times will always determine the outcome. When Judas realized what he had done, who did he go to? Matthew 27 verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. He went to the chief priests and the elders. He could have gone to Jesus first. Jesus' grace would have embraced him. Jesus' patience was there. Jesus knew he was pilfering the funds. The Bible tells us Jesus knew. But Jesus gave him so much, so much room to repent and come back. Grace. But when it came to the crunch, he goes to the chief priests and the scribes. You know, a lot of the church is like that today. We have a problem. Guess what we think first. How can you get me to see that man of God? They say he has something that deals with these things. It's like witchcraft. Can I see the overseer? Once I see the overseer, just to see, set my eyes on the overseer is over. Can I see the bishop? The archbishop? Book an appointment to see Pastor Agu. 
Have you heard about that latest man of God? Ah, the man speaks fire. All this, no attempt to see Jesus. Just attempting to see men and women. It would even be better if you have have spoken to Jesus about it first. Can you see the terrible state the church is in? Where the first thing we think is not, I need to talk to Jesus about this. No, no, I need to talk to Bishop so-and-so about this. I told the story in the first service of, and I think I've told the story before, of many years ago, many, many years ago, 20-something years ago probably, Doc and I were traveling to Nigeria. We got onto the plane, um, and as we walked through business class, uh, we didn't dare to sit in business class in those days. Dare. We just walked through and kept walking, 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 walking. We saw this man of God sprawled in business class. And I, I, I said the stupidest thing, one of the daftest things I've ever said in my life. I looked at him and I said, ah, sir, greeted him. And I said, now that you're on this plane, I know we are going to arrive in Lagos safely. That was where my trust was. This man. We got on the plane. And just as we were flying across towards Spain, they started serving us drinks and snacks. The air hostesses started going around collecting all the stuff they had served us. I said, I was going on. I was so hungry. I poured all the peanuts down my, and drank, drank the juice as quickly as possible. I thought before they reached me to collect this thing, I'm going to eat it. And then it turned out that a flock of birds, a geese or something, I don't know, had flown into the windscreen and cracked the windscreen. And so they were returning to London. And of course, air hostesses are not supposed to panic, but humans are humans. You could tell there, were, there was a bit of a frenzy in their actions. And then I looked out of the window, I was sitting by the window, and I could see that they were jettisoning fuel, which of course meant that they were preparing to crash land. So I just faced God, as they say in Africa. I said, I said Lord, I said, please, all my sins... The ones that I've confessed and the ones I've forgotten, please just forgive me now. I say the secret ones between me and you, I'm telling you now in case you did not see it. I'm confessing everything. I say, Lord, I cannot afford not to go to heaven if this thing crashes. So I did all my confessions, checked everything, entered every wardrobe, pulled over carpets, things that were hidden, things I thought I'd played games with God. I said, God, everything I've told you now. And then I slept off. I said in the first service, I never, I wonder what Doc did, but this one was every man for himself. (laughs) Every man for himself. I don't know what he did. When he preaches next, he'll tell you what he did. We arrived. I woke up as the Tires hit the ground. I slept off. You know, that's how I am. There's nothing you can do. I don't understand the science. This massive thing carrying 300 of us is in the air. They say two people are flying it. The science doesn't make sense to me. I cannot help matters. I can't put my feet on the ground. I better sleep. Maybe if God has, still has work for me, I'll wake up here. If not, I'll wake up there. It's okay. Life goes on. Eternity continues. So when the tires hit the ground, I woke up. So when we got down, they said they were going to put us in a hotel. Of course, you know, 
where Doc and I were, they were talking about the Premier Inn or whatever, Travel Lodge, one of those nice hotels. But for the other people, they were taking them to some fancy hotels. So I went up to the guy. He had told us when, when we walked by him that he's the main speaker, and he told us the conference in Nigeria. I said, I'm the main speaker. You know how, you know, the man of God voice, I'm the main speaker at the conference in Nigeria. So when I got to him, I said, oh, sir, so are you going to your hotel so we can fly tomorrow? They're taking us tomorrow. His voice was a whimper. He said, Agu, we almost died on that plane. I said, yes, sir, but, you know, God has delivered us. We are going tomorrow. He said, I'm not going anymore. I'm going home. I saw fear in his eyes. And as soon as he said that, God said to me, that's who you were trusting to carry this plane to Nigeria. That's the person you were trusting. What am I saying to you? Stop trusting man. We, we, we try, we, we, a lot of it, we, have, we too are trying the faith thing. When we come up here and speak with our confidence, look at Moses. The children of Israel behind him. The children of Israel with him. Red Sea in front of him. An army that's murderous army coming behind him. What does Moses do? That's what all men of God do. We speak by faith. We have to speak by faith. So he stood up. So these Egyptians you see, you will see no more. That's what Moses said with the big man of God's voice. As soon as they turned away, what do you think Moses did? On his face, God, help us. We are finished. That's what we do. Let me tell you, that's what we do. We can come up here and say, it's not going to happen in my time. I, I declare it. When you go, we fall on the floor. We say, God, help us. That's the truth. So don't put your trust in any man, any overseer, any bishop, any archbishop, any pastor, any deacon, any deaconess. Put your trust in God first. Mortals like you. That's what we are. With issues like you. If you could see our secret lives, half of, half of the people you're following, you will not follow them. Follow Christ. Go to God first. Then let us support you as we are supporting ourselves. Can someone say amen to that? Number seven. Number seven. As we end. Remorse is not repentance. What did he feel? The Bible says he felt remorse. And that's what happens a lot in the church. But it is not remorse that touches God's heart. It is repentance that touches God's heart. It is reaching a place where our hearts are grieved and broken by the sin. Not talking about it in a glib way. It is what the psalmist portrays for us in Psalms 51. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. This is repentance. The Passion Translation. It says, God designed us to feel remorse over sin in order to produce repentance that leads to victory. The boss does not stop at remorse. 
Remorse is the start of the journey. I blew it. That's remorse. Oh man, I blew this stuff. That's remorse. I'm sorry. That's remorse. But repentance is my heart is broken. Repentance is I'm not a God help me. I'm not going to do this again. I'm changing my ways. Remorse is I'm sorry. But when she phones two hours later, he says, hey babe, what's happening? This is the, that's the remorse. Hey babe, what's happening? Repentance is she phones. You just delete her number. You want, you want to destroy my life. That's repentance. Remorse is you cursing out your husband. Look at your head like a coconut. Your whole family, all their heads like coconuts. Anyway, darling, what would you like for breakfast? That's remorse. That's remorse. Repentance is how could I say that to my husband? How could words like that Bitter water come out of the same place I expect sweet water to come from. Repentance is cast me not away, O God, from your presence. Repentance is Psalms 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God you will not despise. The church needs a lot of repentance. When people give their lives now, it's so psychedelic. It's trendy. There's no genuine repentance. People don't look at where they're coming from and think, how could I do this to God? It's what Joseph said, I cannot sin against God like this. It is not sinning, feeling sorry, I'm planning how you will sin not to feel sorry next time. It's not repentance. So Judas felt remorse. If he felt repentance, he would have gone in the opposite direction to Jesus. And you know what the Bible says in that scripture? It says remorse that's driven by the Spirit of God, submitted to the Spirit of God, leads to repentance and then it leads to victory. That's what the scripture says. And what's that victory? It is the price that was paid for us at the cross of Calvary. So when we, had, when we genuinely repent, we wrong foot the enemy because he thinks the accuser of the brethren thinks I've got you. But when the repentance is genuine, God wipes the slate clean and God says, I can't see it. And the person is, is now put back on the victorious platform because the repentance was genuine. And that thing does the head of the enemy in. Because he knows that she's guilty. He's guilty. She's guilty. But God says no. They didn't just show remorse. They repented. And the scripture says a sacrifice that God says I can't, I can't, I can't resist this sacrifice. A broken, a contrite heart, a repentant heart. God says I can't res- resist it. And so God says okay, I've wiped the slate clean. The God of all knowledge chooses to have selective amnesia when there's genuine repentance. Give God a clap offering. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. And if there's anyone here who hasn't given their life to Jesus, you want to repent, turn away from a particular life. 
and come into the arms of God. What a wonderful opportunity on a day like this. You're out there watching and you don't have a relationship with Christ. This is the time to start that relationship. You want to give your life to Christ. Well, how do I do that? By opening your heart. He's already knocking on the door of your heart. That's what he does. But choice, the choice is ours. Judas had a choice. The choice is ours. And so why don't you just open up your heart and receive him into your life? How do I do that? By your confession. Believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. And so if you say this, make this confession with me. Genuinely meaning every word. He comes into your heart. Why don't you say after me? Heavenly Father, today I receive your son Jesus into my life as Lord and Savior. As my Lord and my Savior. I repent, turn away from anything I have been doing that wasn't pleasing to you. I commit myself to a life of obedience to you, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By my confession today, I declare that I am now a child of yours. Born again today into your family, your kingdom. Thank you for receiving me. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And church, will we celebrate the, those who have joined our family? Hallelujah. Amen and amen.